Hello and welcome to the R717 Show, brought to you by Ammonia Refrigeration Training Solutions. We are the newest opportunity in ammonia safety training and compliance. We serve to advance ammonia as the safest and most efficient refrigerant known to man. Our podcasts are driven by industry and relevant to ammonia operators, mechanics, technicians, engineers, and safety professionals. Without further ado, help me welcome our host, Jeremy Williams. This is Jeremy Williams with Ammonia Refrigeration Training Solutions. Today, we got a very another special podcast to bring to you. I have Eric Smith all the way from Washington, D.C. with the International Institute of Ammonia Refrigeration. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing pretty well, uh, Jeremy. Thank you very much. Quite busy and uh, I'm trying to, trying to stay on top of things. So uh, uh, that's, that's good news. Uh, our industry seems to be very busy. That means that I am too. I can only imagine as the uh, vice president and technical director of IIR, what's involved with a day-to-day basis of what you do each and every day. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do with IIR. And- sure, I'd be happy to do that, Jeremy. Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm the vice president and the technical director. And what that means is my primary role is to keep abreast of uh, technical issues and technical needs of the industry. Being vice president encompasses uh, a lot of other uh, responsibilities, I guess you might say, everything from uh, some management to uh, being uh, kind of a representative of the association to, to various other groups and interests. Really, uh, what I do is to bring the concerns or or the issues in the industry to the table. You might say I am the the point man. Uh, I'm the the guy that people get in touch with if they have technical questions, uh, if there are regulatory concerns that are going on, if there are technical problems in the field. You know, if we have, for example, uh, issues about condensate-induced hydraulic shock, you know, that... Mm -hmm. People might bring that to my attention. And what I try to do is to take these concerns and route them to the various committees that IIAR has, for lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, IIAR really is made up of many committees, uh, each focusing on a certain aspect of our industry. And of course, all all the committees uh, are governed by the board of directors. You know, again, I I sort of liaison between the committees and the board of directors and the public and the regulatory agencies. So you might imagine that's a fair amount of uh, information to keep up with. You know, along with all that, uh, one of my responsibilities is the development and maintenance of our standards, IIAR standards. Uh, I do have a a solid helper with that, Tony Lindell. He is the senior director of of standards development, and uh, he does a very good job with that. And of course, uh, our our standards have to be maintained, and sometimes we come up with a new one. So we'll talk about more about that in just a little bit. I'm very involved with the research committee, and as I mentioned before, there are often issues that are that are brought up, or I guess uh, revisited. You might say sometimes where we determine that a research project would be a good idea to aid the understanding or or maybe to even provide really very interesting projects. One is we're looking at ventilation rates in machinery rooms and uh, hired 
a, a researcher called Jexcon is very good at CFD modeling of explosive explosive or uh, flammable and how that all reacts and you know how the leak dissipates in a room or even outside I'm speaking generally for them and so we're trying to understand you know does the ventilation rate that IIAR has now adequate uh, is it too much is it too little and like that so that project's been going on for a couple of years well, you know, I wasn't planning on asking this question, but bringing up maybe the research on ventilation, I'm going to throw it at you and see what your thoughts are. You know, as we've came from like Bulletin 111 to IIR2, and now all the additions of IIR2 that keep coming out, and the increase of ventilation, CFM, how I see it, how it keeps getting greater on the amount of air turnovers of those rooms. Do you as an industry see that we're actually having more ignitions in the machine room now than we ever have? Or is there any data that correlates no, we, with that? No, we aren't. I mean, um, ability to use tools and understand how how leaks work uh, is getting better. Okay. And, and that, I think, causes people to remember I said sometimes we revisit a topic, right? Mm -hmm. well, and other things are going on within the wider refrigeration world too, because we have the advent of A2Ls. And, and uh, of course that, that industry is heavily funded and a lot of research has been done on the A2L refrigerants, which are flammable. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of presented an opportunity for us to say, okay, well, you know, what about ammonia? Ammonia and A2Ls exhibit very uh, similar properties um, as far as combustion goes. Uh, a number of the studies that came out and said, hey, you know what, can you guys look at ammonia and, and see, you know, how does it really act? Now, so Bulletin 111 came out, and then I, I think sometime around in the mid-2000s, uh, a little more research was done, some engineering analysis of a release from various pipe sizes, high-pressure liquid lines, and, and studied, you know, how much ammonia would get released. And then uh, they did some field tests and, and kind of correlated uh, their engineering analysis. And it turned out to be, you know, what I consider to be pretty accurate. And essentially that, that drove a change in 2010, the IIAR2 addendum A, 2010 addendum A, I think it was. What many people to be, many people believe to be a major increase in ventilation. That, that, that is not an entirely accurate perception. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because for many years, uh, ASHRAE, ASHRAE 15 and IIAR2 established the ventilation rate as being 100 times the square root of the mass of the system. Now, as you know, some systems are huge, mm -hmm. very huge, and some systems are pretty small. And while it seems pretty obvious in retrospect, uh, the mass of the system really should not be the, the motivating factor behind the ventilation rate. A leak is a leak is a leak, whether it comes from a small system or a huge one. It's only going to leak at a certain rate. So any, anyway, with that engineering analysis, what uh, the, the gist of it was, was um, folks on the standards committee had to you know, essentially agree to what a uh, most likely worst case scenario. And that was the shearing off of a one half inch pipe. Okay. And 
you can you can back into that uh, amount of ammonia and then the amount of air that that would take to keep that below the lower flammability limit. And that's roughly about 11,000 CFM, if I recall correctly, um, then to be conservative about it. Did, did I say below the LFL? I meant to say uh, 25% of the LFL, uh, NFPA methodology for reducing explosive limits. So essentially um, trying to keep the machine room somewhere around 4% or less based upon this leak. Yeah, I, I don't think of it in terms of 4%. I think of it as in percentage of LFL. Uh, I believe it is 16,000 parts per million or 160, I'm sorry, 160,000 parts per million is the LFL. So 25% of that is 40,000 PPM. Yes, sir. That's correct. Okay. That would equate to a 4% ratio as well. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. So yeah. it's all the same math, just a yeah, different way yeah, of looking at it. Exactly. It's the same math. And it just depends on how you're used to talking about it, I guess. So sort of the, the basis for the rate and, and then a survey of about 50. So we said, okay, well, how does this compare to, you know, what's out there, uh, the, the ventilation systems that are out there that are based on uh, 100 times the square root of the mass. Well, uh, a survey was done of about 50 facilities. And by the way, this was this was before my time at IAR. A survey of about 50 average size machinery rooms, and I can't remember what the figures are right now, showed that uh, the 30 air changes per hour rate that we currently have published uh, pretty well matched what was existing. So, um, you know, while that seems to be quite a bit different than what Bulletin 111 said. Bulletin 111 was is pretty old. Yes, sir. Uh, the 100 times the square root of G has been in effect for a very long time. You know, to make things easier for compliance, uh, using 30 air changes per hour, based on those averages I discussed, was the reasoning behind it all. Yeah, it's definitely a lot easier now. If I remember right, Bulletin 111, you had six or seven different math calculations. One of them you mentioned, and yeah. I don't have it quoted because it's been retired for so long, but you had to take the most conservative ventilation rate between those six or seven math equations. Today, it's a lot easier, you know, just length times width times height and multiply it by 0.5 or divide by two. And that's going to give you your 30 air changes an hour. Definitely an easier way to see conformity and compliance. Yeah, and, it, it is. Uh, but, but I will point out that, you know, if you sort of think about it intuitively, a really huge room uh, based on that might have really excessive amounts of airflow and a really small room based on that might not have nearly enough. So that's sort of one of the things that, that we were looking at. And that's what came out during the A2L studies that really it's the small rooms uh, that are, are really of a concern. Uh, and of course, nobody wants to buy more equipment than, than they need or ventilate more than they absolutely have to uh, sometimes. And so, you know, it's applicable for the large rooms too. The CFD study is helping us understand what's going on. Probably won't be changes anytime soon because what we found in the CFD study is that, you know, the leak rates can get pretty high. Now, that study doesn't really examine risks. So I think that's going to be the next step. The next step. You know, industry has risks. You have to sort of weigh you know, what you're getting, 
with um, increased ventilation against the the potential consequences or or the you know the potential rate of occurrence. You and I know it's just not common for uh, machinery rooms to have a, a deflagration. Once in a while it has happened and it's pretty rare. And when it when it has happened, the most recent time I can think of, the room wasn't in compliance in any way, shape, or form. There weren't detectors, there weren't working ventilation fans. Uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff that should have been in place. So I, I my personal opinion is uh, by simply complying with the IIAR standards, you nearly eliminate risk altogether. It's amazing. And you make, you know, you wonder how many lives have been saved for people just conforming with some of these basic things in your, in your all's documents. The number of deaths in our industry is relatively low compared to other industries. Uh, and considering the, the number of facilities that we have out there. So I, think all in all, we have a, a pretty decent track record with all respect to the people who have been injured and, and killed along the way. So let me get with this, uh, Eric, you know, I, I wanted to bring you on because I get these questions every time we teach a government regulation course on process safety management and uh, try to give the best answers we possibly can based upon whether it's a code, a standard, uh, the regulations, or just some refrigeration book somewhere. So preparing for this, you know, I was trying to figure out who I wanted to interview, and I definitely wanted to be you because you are the point man. And anytime we've had a technical question, you've definitely been able to give us the right answer or lead us in the right direction with the right association or group that could. So let's say we have an industrial ammonia refrigeration system. It's been built. It's been charged with ammonia. It's been running. What should we expect to lose just normally by our inventory of ammonia, let's say per day, per month, per calendar year? What is an acceptable loss rate? of ammonia during just normal operations? Uh, well, you know, that, that has been a long time perennial question, Jeremy. Uh, and I'll tell you that there is no IIAR statements about it. Uh, that being said, the, the rule of thumb for many years was, you know, uh, refrigeration systems lose 10 to 20%. Um, I feel like that was a little high. Um, but, but I, even this year, um, there was a technical paper that IIAR published and was developed by Mark Kloss and others at the International Refrigeration Consortium uh, and the Industrial Refrigeration Consortium, the IRC, as mm -hmm. many people know it. Uh, they published a fantastic paper that addresses this very issue. But, you know, a really specific um, detail on that, I, I would recommend that people go and read the paper. I will, however, kind of summarize what they found. It's, it's common for a leak rate of 5% uh, from fugitive emissions to occur. Some other observations were that uh, ammonia with its strong smell is, is obviously a lot easier to detect. Um, you, don't, you can smell it, so you know there's something going on. And our industry is getting better and better and is actually, I think, pretty good about addressing uh, fugitive emissions in any releases, frankly, simply because uh, we do have to report losses of 100 pounds in 24 hours, and it's in nobody's interest to, for there to be an accident. So the strong smell works to our advantage in that case, 
know, sometimes a strong smell works against us because it alarms a lot of people. And when it comes to, to leaks, uh, I think it does work to our advantage. It lets people know when, when there is a problem. But getting back to the paper, did dynamic analysis where they would you know, sort of study the level of vessels under certain conditions and certain loads. Uh, and then they, they also went on to do uh, things like bagging uh, valves in connections, you know, because a lot of fugitive leaks come from valves, gaskets and, you know, packing glands and things like this. So when you say like bagging, like putting like a, like a yeah, uh, balloon around a, the valve? Uh, an actual plastic bag around, around it and taping it and sealing it off and then measuring the concentration within the bag and, and sort of backing into a, uh, a leak rate based oh. on concentration increase. It was a lot of great work. I, I think they, they put a lot of effort into it. And uh, Mark gave a, a very nice presentation at the IIAR conference, uh, online conference this year about it. Part of their conclusions were that, you know, um, if you have like a small or, or a medium sized system leaking somewhere at around 2000 pounds a year or 5% of the system, then you should actively start looking for the leak. Uh, another conclusion was that on very large systems, 5% of a really large system could be well above the 2,000 pound a year mark. Uh, but their recommendation is that if you can determine you're losing as much as 2,000 pounds, whether you have a small or large system, then you need to actively search for the leaks and try to get them reduced. Uh, of course, there are um, some losses due to venting ammonia you know, maintenance procedures where you might have to pump out a section of piping, that sort of thing. My best advice there is, is, you know, remove as much liquid as possible and make an estimate of the amount of vapor that gets removed. Tally all this stuff up because you might be challenged. It, it, honestly, it would take a pretty savvy uh, inspector to figure out any of this out, but, you know, you might be challenged on where did your ammonia go? What a couple of other points I'd like to make is that. So let me pause and take a minute to get to today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is TRC. That is the refrigeration company. TRC understands that good service means being responsive. They specialize in industrial money refrigeration systems, changeouts, and specialized work. They have a highly trained, responsible, and dedicated staff that are available 24 hours, seven days a week. If you need any work on ammonia refrigeration systems, modifications, changeouts, or just some consultants, give TRC a call, 251-348-8533. Again, that's 251-348-8533. Let's get back to the show with Eric Smith from the IIAR. I'm sorry to cut you off there, Eric. Do you yeah, think in okay. the future that you might see maybe in the IIAR standard a simple publication from you guys that makes a statement like this? so that the industry has a better defense for where some of this ammonia goes from packing glands, shaft seals, draining oil pots, cycling valves, something definitive in writing that could help us? Or do you think that this will stay more just a white paper type of result? Well, um, it, it would probably stay as a white paper result. If we did put it into a standard, it would be uh, an informative statement. Okay. Uh, we have to be careful about making normative statements or, or the kinds of statements where, you know, there is an absolute or prescribed method or a prescribed formula and that sort of thing. You know, all systems are different and some are older and some are newer. 
you would expect new ones to, to leak much less and the older ones to leak a little more. So I, I don't think you would see IIAR coming out with a statement like that, no. Fair enough. Unless it were simple a simple advisory uh, statement somewhere. So let's move on to the next question here. Let's say we have an existing system and it's you know got an ammonia charge. Think of like a heat exchanger or a vessel and uh, we're gonna do a pump down, pump out on it. And we're gonna cut into the pipe and replace a valve that is on the piping or the piece of equipment or the first inline valve that's connected to the vessel. What do you think the best method is for trying to safely weld in this valve into the piping system with a system that already had ammonia and residual oil inside of it? Yeah, well, um, that, that's a good question. I, and I gotta tell you, I, I've been a designer. I was a designer for a long time. Uh, I did 18 years of ammonia refrigeration design and I did HVAC and fire protection and plumbing, things like that beforehand. But I've never been a contractor. I was a service technician for a while. And, but as far as uh, you know, what all it takes physically to weld up the pipe and all like that, I'm not an expert on it. However, there are obviously steps to follow in a case like this. So first and foremost, um, everybody should follow a written procedure. And you know, I'm 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 saying that from wearing the hat of you know the guy who wants to prevent. Um, regulators from finding our end users. So follow procedures and the procedures should be thought out ahead of time and everybody should agree on them, of course. Along with following the line opening procedures, you need to follow lockout tag out procedures. Facilities should have those as well. Now, presuming you have all your procedures in place and you have your personal protective equipment and, and facilities should have guidelines for, not guidelines, but their, their own rules for what PPE is to be used. Uh, in any case, everyone should have an APR on hand. So all that, all that stated and all that out of the way, you wanna remove as much liquid from that section as possible. Uh, you do that by stopping the flow of liquid, if it, you know, presuming it is a liquid filled pipe and letting that boil out um, with the refrigeration system somehow or other. Remove the liquid as much as possible to where you feel like you only have vapor left anymore. Uh, and then of course, uh, you need to isolate that section, lock out, tag out, and uh, reduce the pressure uh, through your pump down, of course. But then, then comes the point where you have to remove the residual ammonia vapor. Um, that can be done either through a pump out system, if you're lucky enough to have one of those, or a vacuum pump with the outlet hose connected to a bucket of water, or simply venting to a bucket of water. Um, this is, of course, a very common procedure and um, most folks know about how to do it. Uh, the thing that you wanna keep in mind there, of course, is to not let water draw back into the system. Yes, sir. Right. So. Uh, that stated, uh, you might end up with some residual oil and you might have, um, you know, ammonia leaking through a shut valve as it, you know, warms up or 
after it's been shut down, right? So uh, due to thermal expansion, once you, you think you have a, a valve that's closed, it can actually have weeping seals and you might not be aware of it. So another thing to do is to actually, you know, once, once those shutoff valves are, are off and have warmed up, go back and tighten them some more. That will help prevent uh, any kind of weeping seals there. Now, I guess, depending on how confident you are, you might want to test the inside of the pipe or whatnot, but I, I believe that uh, one of the standard procedures is to uh, flood the inside of the pipe with an inert gas like nitrogen or at a low pressure before you begin welding, before you actually before you begin cutting. Um, would you want to take that piping segment into a deep vacuum and then refill that area with nitrogen to bring it back up to about atmospheric pressure? I'm, I'm glad you said that. Uh, that that's probably a good idea. Uh, again, our, our, the tricks in the trade of contractors, and we don't really tell people, it's, it's not the prerogative of IIAR to tell people how to do maintenance, right? There's a lot of other literature out there on, on the best means and methodology. But what we do in IIAR sticks is to tell you what to inspect, how often to inspect it, and um, how often to maintain a thing. So how you go about doing that uh, really is up to the end user slash the contractors. And there are a lot of other guidance out there for that. Yeah, there's not a lot of official public information on how to, you know, weld in, cut into an existing pipe with ammonia and oil in there. I think this would be a great opportunity for IR as well to have another informative section to maybe IR6 about this generic type of procedure on how to um, basically try yeah. to keep as little amount of oxygen as you can present. You know, some of these guys are backfeeding it with air trying to flush it out, and that just doesn't make no sense. And if you were to backfeed it with air, trying to flush it out you're just creating a perfect cocktail well and, air under under high pressure can be uh can be pretty explosive uh even in an r22 system it's something i learned about once i started here but uh i, I have heard of cases where uh, people pressurize r22 systems with air to you know build onto a system or whatever and the combination of of air pressure it's all the oxygen in there uh, reacts with the R22 in some sort of magic way and and has actually caused explosions. Wow, I didn't I know that. It's, it's pretty rare. Uh, it was a rare occurrence, you know, not out of the question. So yes, definitely use inert gas. Uh, you know, there's a lot of CO2 around and a lot of nitrogen around. It's, it's not that hard, not that uh, expensive. So, definitely uh, would recommend nitrogen in that area for sure yeah. so let me ask you another question here eric you know let's say we have a uh, compressor uh, screw or recip running it in an ammonia refrigeration system ir6 recommends that we test all of our annual safeties uh, which would be like low pressure cutout high pressure cutout discharge temperature cutout your oil pressure high level floats maybe e-stops at least all on an annual basis yeah. We definitely don't have time to cover every single one of these, but let's talk about the high pressure cutout switch. What would okay. be the, what would be a way or some ways to test that switch for a compressor? Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the good news is that IIAR6 gives you some nice guidance and I'm, I will first, I'll, I'll lay out the three ways that, that we discuss and 
we'll talk about it as being applied to a pressure transducer. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's that's mostly the the method of high pressure cutout these days. Um, of course, there there are the older electromechanical type cutouts, and I think you could pretty well apply this to you know most any kind of cutout. But um, the first thing I guess I'd like to say is it is not okay to remove the cutout from the system and pressure bench test it. Uh, because that doesn't really let you know if the cutout actually does what it is intended to do, which is to shut off the compressor, right? It could be a, an issue besides the, the switch or the transducer that, that's keeping the compressor from being cut off. So, um, so it's not okay to, to take it out. And it's also not okay to isolate the compressor, you know, shut it off from the rest of the scent on the rest of the system and pressurize the compressor. So uh, for the same reason, if you shut off the compressor, you don't know if it's if the switch is actually really shutting it down. If it's gonna turn it off, yeah. Right. Now, um, this was a great topic of discussion when IIAR6 was being um, uh, formulated and so that's how we ended up with, with a whole lot of informative information here. There, there are a number of ways to get this done in a safe manner. And one is to manipulate the discharge pressure to increase it to the shutdown set point. Now, a lot of people can, can you know, we'll go about this in a couple of different ways. Uh, one way is to very slowly, um, close the compressor discharge stop valve without ever turning it completely off. Now, yeah, I think that would be okay as long as the machine was unloaded before you went ahead and yeah. started pinching that down. That's how I do it the most of the time. Yeah. So, uh, and the, the matter of wire drawing is, is probably not a real concern if you're only doing this once a year. Yeah. Right. So that, that is way to go about doing it. Uh, the other way, that's discussed is to, you know, start turning off condensers. And when you start turning off condensers, your head pressure is naturally going to rise. Now this might not be uh, optimal for keeping your refrigeration system running, obviously. So it might not be an option, but it is a, a method that would work. You know, you could turn off pumps, you could turn off fans. You essentially slowly bring the discharge pressure up. Uh, but again, that might cause operational problems. So it all depends on your system and when you're doing it and that sort of thing. Yeah, that test right there, you could probably test a whole bank of compressors at once, you know, turn yeah, them all on, good. unload them all, then yep. um, slowly bring the head pressure up on all of them. Uh, and then the other method, you could use that by testing each machine individually and be able to keep your system running as needed. So those are both great ideas. So um, that is reducing the cutout set point and raise the discharge pressure until shutdown occurs. So that, that's kind of a combination thing there, but uh, you wouldn't want to, to make it go too low, right? You know, that's what I've done when I've walked into a plant before too. You know, if you've never seen this machine before, you don't even know if the safety works. Sometimes just, you know, yeah. if they're running 130 head, put that switch at 125 and just see if it activates. And, right. you know, just to see if it works first and foremost, and then you can start, you know, maybe putting the limit of that safety back to where it needs to be. 
and see if you can get an active test at the active pressure they desire. But sure. uh, just to know if the switch works at all, that might be something that we could start the conversation with. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and there are some other things you ought to do when you're doing that, like installing a master gauge, make sure that, you know, the pressure that you're reading is uh, reliable, right? That, that would be one thing to do. Um, you increase the compressor discharge uh, pressure slowly by raising the condenser pressure or throttling the discharge valve. And uh, simultaneously, if the measured pressure exceeds the cutout point without stopping the compressor, the compressor should be immediately shut down and repairs made. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of reading from my, from my IAR6 here and, you know, it provides a lot more detail than I think that we can get into right here and right now. But then a, a third way uh, to do this and probably is um, the easiest and the compressor manufacturers have caught on to this, but to use a, a check valve and a, and a block and bleed valve and an external pressure source such that you can, uh, without removing the pressure transducer or the pressure switch, um, isolate it from the system, pump it up with pressure, you know, either um, oil pressure or, or some other kind of, uh, not air pressure, but, you know, um, inert gas pressure and make the switch shut off the compressor. Yes, sir. Then that residual pressure, you know, you bleed that off before you put it back online, presuming everything passed the test. Yeah, when IR6 first came out and I saw those schematics, you know, I, I never thought about that stuff or even doing it that way. And it would be very difficult to do that on existing machines with the manufacturers had that built in. Uh, I think more of them are, are heading that way. I think it'd be um, a lot easier for us for sure when it's there from the factory. It would be a lot easier and a lot safer than, than you know, somebody forgets to open the valve back up and that sort of thing. But this, this kind of takes a lot of the risk right out of it. Um, if you're a designer out there listening to this or, or somebody who's responsible for ordering equipment, uh, I would ask for that. I would ask for that, um, that feature on your compressor cutouts. Very cool. I look forward to seeing my first machine with it for sure. Let's, let's hope we move that way. People have to know about it first before they can ask for it, I guess. And other folks, you know, when, when I, I guess I should say, when I say other folks, I mean, uh, Various people bidding on a project might not include everything uh, that would be all the bells and whistles, uh, because obviously they they want to they want to have a good price, you know, and they want to make it attractive for the purchaser. So um, the purchaser needs to know to ask for these things. Yeah, with y'all's permission, I'll put a image of that schematic you guys have IR6 with the podcast so that people can see that. If not, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, let, we'll send them to you directly and they can buy IR6 from you guys and see the whole document. Yeah, that would be okay. So let's talk about a little bit more IR6. You know, uh, every vessel that's on the low side that these compressors suck off of, it's been recommended for many, many years to have a fixed safety for high level protection like a mechanical float. Um, there's been arguments on how to test that switch as well. What do you think is probably the best way to test a high-level float on a vessel for high-level shutdown on compressors? Oh, my gosh. Uh, this, this is uh, uh, a Pandora's box you've opened here, Jeremy. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'll say one of my first issues when I came into the association here, it's been about 12, 13 years now, was that there are some regulators who were reviewing our one of our standards and it could have been in IIAR2 at the time, but you know, because it wasn't until 2014 that we separated installation and startup. Uh, and it uh, wasn't until a little bit later until, you know, I guess, IR6, the, the maintenance standard didn't come out until you know, really pretty recently. So uh, back to the situation uh, is that it became clear that, that regulators want to see that the test is quote unquote functional. So um, it has to work under the conditions that it is expected to work under. So I, I believe something that we used to say a long time was to mechanically lift the float switch and see if that, if that did the job, uh, either by using a magnet or, you know, uh, taking the lifting. top off. Yeah taking the top off and lifting the switch or, or maybe take the bottom off to push the switch up. Uh, I can't recall right now, but that, that was the test that everybody did for a long time. And, and we got a lot of, a lot of kickback from that, I guess, um, in, in public review uh, and, the, and the public review comments were, were coming from some regulators. Now I can understand what they mean. Uh, sometimes, Floats are known not to actually lift when uh, the when the fluid rises to their level. You know, maybe they have a leak, or maybe there's you know sticking for some other reason. Maybe you know, oil around them, or maybe a hole in the ball so it doesn't rise. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, the idea there is that you know you want to actually make the float float, or if you don't have a float, and I think this is kind of interesting. I had to defend IAR not long ago, uh, where somebody was not intending to use a float switch. And actually, IAR does not say that you have to use a float switch. It says a device, mm -hmm. right? So that can be um, a, a, a column with a transducer in it, as far as IAR2 is concerned. So, but you, that doesn't relieve you from testing it, right? So that's back to our problem. So the only way to, to really functionally test these, these columns and switches is to flood it with ammonia. And that of course presents a problem. Um, the best thing that anybody can do out there is to make sure that you have a means to flood the column without actually flooding the vessel. Yeah. You don't wanna fill the vessel up because well, you know, there's your liquid slug right there, right? You hope it shuts off, but what if it doesn't? Mm -hmm. You know, then you're, then you're really going to ruin some stuff, and plus you're going to mess up operations. So uh, having ports access at, at the bottom and the top of the float columns is, is the surefire way to do it. You somehow have to connect back into the system or, or manage this ammonia that you're going to... Um, fill the columns with, and then subsequently get rid of. That, that's a way to do it. Now, so that's what I mean by Pandora's box. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know 
what all the tricks of the trade are. Uh, I won't pretend to, but I, I can tell you that probably the best safest way to do it is to be sure that you have some sort of access at the top and the bottom to flood the float column and be able to get rid of the ammonia afterwards. Yeah, if it's a pump package, it's probably going to be the easiest way to do. I've seen at least, you know, developing our last systems there at GCAP with my father. Uh, you can hard pipe it off the discharge of the pumps to the bottom of the column, and that valve is yep. normally closed. Yep. And as long as you put some isolation valves on the column that connect back to the tank, you can close the bottom of the two and start slowly filling up the column from those ammonia pumps. Yep and leave that top one equalize the suction. So your vessel is still at your normal level, but you can fill that column up and get it to test. But right. not every sight glass columns has, you know, isolation valves. Some of them are just flanged yeah. um, and it all, it does make it difficult. What I found is that there's no two vessels plumb the same in this area. And each one of them has to be independently looked at and evaluated. How are we gonna get it? Yeah. How are we gonna get a true test, not a half a test? And how are we going to be able to still run the system safely with being able to do one of these critical safety tests on it. Yeah, so I appreciate your comments there. Yeah. And um, well, so, uh, if you know, again, if, if people listening to the podcast here, if you if you haven't thought about how you're going to test your float switches, you know, maybe you need to think about a project uh, to, to get some access to to your columns. Uh, that'll make things make your life much easier in the long run. So let me throw back a question to you now. You know, these last two questions have been about testing safeties required by IIAR6 standard. Let's say that one of these safeties actually trip during running time, uh, not during a test, but they actually activate, such as the high pressure cutout switch or the high level level in a vessel. Can we take credit for that being a functional test, even though it wasn't designed to be a functional test? <laughs> Oh boy, I, I I don't know if I can answer that. I would That's say all right. Probably, I would say probably not. Um, but you know, I would say also that that's a, a pretty dang good argument to a regulator um, to say, hey, you know, this happened and it worked. It's proof. So, yeah, it's it's proof that it worked. So you know, but was it scheduled? You know, did it fall into into the your your regimented program of ITM. And sometimes I am, am forced to uh, defend positions that, you know, maybe don't make practical sense sometimes. Uh, but remember, we do have uh, a regulatory body out there. And I think you want as little trouble from them as possible, um, which is not to say that I recommend kowtowing. You know, when you're doing something right and they say it's wrong, I absolutely agree that you should go to the mat with them um, and and argue your position. But, you know, there, there's the, the old expression, don't poke the bear. So, uh, I don't know, using an incident to, to get out of um, uh, having to do a, a annual test maybe it's not really your easiest path in the long run but at least you have a documented case that worked and if you can show yeah. i think an investigation on it as well right. uh, you at least have some some paperwork there to prove that it worked at that time yeah. so we have about three minutes here left yeah. tell us about okay. the uh next iir convention that you guys are going to be putting on in georgia and oh after yeah uh be glad to do that and, and thanks for asking we hope uh you and 
and all your listeners out there will come down to Savannah in March. We're excited because we've missed two live conferences in a row now. IIAR has done okay financially uh, based on our uh, uh, publications and and all like that and education programs. Uh, we do derive a pretty decent amount of our of our operating budget from the conference. So we hope that we meet in person. Uh, we're planning on it. If you've been to IIAR conferences, I think most people have a really good time. Uh, it's a few days long and uh, starts on, on a Monday, or the main part of it starts on Monday and is over by Wednesday morning, Wednesday midday. There are committee meetings and board meetings and things like that that, that happen ahead of time. So if you are members or interested or even if you you know if you sign up for the conference you're welcome to come sit in on committee meetings also um but more to the program uh we have 13 technical papers and these are papers uh, that people have written and they will make presentations uh twice uh so that's at least 26 presentations on on technical papers um we have two or three workshops lined up. And we have, of course, our, our code and regulatory update panel and our research panel where we'll, we'll discuss current research projects and how they're going along and talk about proposed research projects. And then we'll have some type of closing forum that we haven't quite decided on just yet. Um, we are in discussions with the Ammonia Safety Training Institute to to uh, you know, have a ammonia live release demonstration, but we have to be sure that we can work that out with the uh, with the hotel and that sort of thing. So um, that little part of the program is still up in the air, uh, but we will also have uh, something I'm pretty excited about is a, a special Sunday program. So it's, you know, we we started calling this our Sunday educational program, and this year it's all about controls. So we have four experts from, from the controls part of the industry that will discuss uh, you know, what controls are and how they, how they link up. But, but really um, maybe more interesting than that is, you know, that first part would be like a fundamental uh, uh, lecture on how controls work, right? Uh, the next three topics are, I think are very interesting and that's uh, what end users do uh, what they expect from their control systems. And uh, then we are going to talk about sort of future aspects of controls, things like uh, using smart technology, using data logging, using predictive failure, using remote operations, all these sorts of things that, that you think of when you think of the internet and uh, what's it called, 5G smart world concept, right? And, and how this could, should, or should, or maybe should not um, be tied into control systems. So I, I look forward to that. I think it's gonna be, finally, I'll say that um, our, our conference, you know, there'll be an exhibition as we always have with, with the uh, manufacturers that serve our industry. And there will be info, infomercials. So th those are our infomercials. Um, and of course, we'll have several uh, 
coffee breaks and and social functions you know cocktails and things like this and and uh you know it's a great way to network meet people and you know you it's really uh probably one of the reasons that anybody comes to any conference is to you know get to know your colleagues in in your industry and see what they have to say and what you can learn from them and vice versa share your own information no i'm really looking forward to the event in march and you know iar conferences conventions are my favorite i've probably hit over 10 of them since i've been in the industry full-time now and uh, it's an opportunity to see hundreds of the best vendors in the world, thousands of colleagues from operators to engineers to people such as yourself. Eric Smith, I appreciate you from IIAR, the International Institute of Ammonia Federation, from coming on the R717 show today. Uh, I'd like to leave it in your hands. What's the last thing that you would recommend to a new operator today working with an ammonia system? What's something that you would like to leave with them with insight? Train yourself. There you go. Yep. Pick up a book and read it. Yep. Pick up a book and read it. And, you know, also don't be scared. You know, if you do it right, then everything is going to be awesome. That wraps up today's R717 show. If you are seeking a specific topic or would like to be a part of the next episode, give us a call today. If you enjoyed today's topics, please like and share. Thank you from all of us at Ammonia Refrigeration Training Solutions. And until we meet again, keep it in the pipes.